Python is the most widely used language for data science, and there are several libraries that are commonly used by Python data scientists, including NumPy, Pandas, and Scikit-Learn. These libraries improve the user experience of a Python data scientist by giving them access to high-level APIs. Data science is often performed over huge datasets, and the data structures that are instantiated with those datasets are so big that they might need to be spread across multiple machines. To manage large distributed datasets, a library such as Scikit-Learn can use a system called Dask. Dask allows the instantiation of data structures such as a Dask data frame or a Dask array. Matthew Rocklin is the creator of Dask. He joins the show to talk about distributed computing with Dask, its use cases, and the Python ecosystem. Matthew also gives a detailed comparison between Dask and Spark. Spark is also used for distributed data science. It's a show about the future of applied distributed systems for data science. I hope you enjoy it. I also want to mention I've started doing some investing. If you are an entrepreneur with a great idea, particularly one around engineering, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Matthew Rockland, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Python is the most widely used language for data science, and there are several libraries that are commonly used for data science within Python. You've got NumPy, Pandas, Scikit-Learn. What problems do these libraries solve for data scientists? Yeah, that's actually a huge question. I'd actually say that first, there's actually thousands of other libraries. So most people who use Python for data science, they're certainly using those ones as a baseline, but there's lots of other libraries they're bringing in. If they're doing natural language processing, they're doing NLP and they're doing NLTK and Spacey. If they're looking at time series analysis, they're bringing in SciPy and other things. There's all this sort of ecosystem of libraries coming in that are all being active. But as you said, NumPy, Pandas, Scikit-Learn are probably the foundation. And so these are just people who are good at doing a bit of analysis, a bit of data science. They're probably trained as something not computer science, but they want to do a lot of computation that is fast. And so Python is this really nice language because it's really useful, really usable by humans, but is also written by computer scientists. It usually touches a lot of C code, a lot of Fortran code, a lot of battle-hardened numeric systems. And so Python really bridges that gap between usability and hardcore numerics. That's really, really useful for, for computing. Okay. So I, I guess a way of looking at this is these are just libraries that are making it easier to perform data science, machine learning operations. Yes, definitely. Okay. So for many of these applications that I'm building around data science or machine learning, I've got a, a rather large data set. Maybe that data set can fit on a single machine. And my machine has both disk and RAM. Can I use both of these storage mediums for data science? Like if I've got a really large data set and I want to process it on a single machine, am I able to utilize both the RAM and the disk on that single machine? Yeah, so if you're clever, using those libraries, you can. You might load up some CSV file into RAM, process it, throw it out of RAM, load up some other CSV file, process it, throw it out of RAM. 
And so if you're clever, you can do a lot of this work manually by loading in data, processing, and then just and destroying it. Or there are a variety of libraries that will try to reuse NumPy, Pandas, Scikit-Learn, but in a more scalable way. So we do that manual work for you. So you can use a library like Spark. Uh, that wouldn't work with those libraries, but it has its own thing. You can use Dask, a library that I work on, uh, that will do all that for you. So I'll just maybe talk about that for a second. So with Dask DataFrame, you might be given a pandas-like API, but it will load up data, process it in chunks, and give you sort of the, the illusion that you're operating on terabytes of RAM and memory, but actually it's using disk in an intelligent way. Awesome. So basically, even on just the single machine instance for Dask, it can page the large data set and use that paging to utilize disk in an efficient fashion. Yeah, that's correct. Ideally, we don't have to page. Ideally, we can stream, we can find some very clever way to stream through your data set in one go without going back and forth to disk all the time. But you're right, in a worst case scenario, we go back and forth to disk. I see. So you're describing paging versus streaming in the sense that if I just want to perform some NLP operation across my entire data set, that data set does not fit in RAM, I can just incrementally pull in chunks of the data set, run the operation on each chunk, and, and have the result. But in some situation where I would need to process the entire data set multiple times, like if I needed to run one NLP operation and then run another NLP operation, then run another, I'm going to have to be going back and forth. Yeah. And you can imagine it being more complicated. You're running some NLP operation, you're running some other one, you're then joining those two together, you're subtracting off some aggregate off of the first computation, and you get actually these really complicated workflows. And now the question is, can you find some way to walk through that entire workflow in a way that minimizes your memory use at any one time? Uh, and that ends up being actually a really interesting like analytic and research problem to do. So let's talk about that. When I want to scale a Python data science application beyond a single machine, what are my options? Uh, you have a ton. You could write it yourself is maybe the first answer, right? You could learn how sockets work, and you could learn how NumPy and Pandas works, and you could make some sort of queuing system. You could use MPI. So MPI is like an old scientific computing system that's really used for big iron computation. You could use a sort of Hadoop, Spark, Flink, you know, data engineering stack. You could use Dask. So there's a bunch of frameworks that'll try to solve this problem for you. It's actually a really good time to be looking for big data solutions in Python, because there's a lot of competition right now. You could also use a database, right? Something that was really geared for just one kind of system. If all you want to do is SQL queries, you should just be using a data database. You're the creator of Dask, as you've mentioned, and this is a system for scaling Python. Give an overview of what problem Dask solves. Yeah, so as you mentioned at the top of the show, you know, NumPy, Pandas, Scikit-Learn, they're very popular. They unfortunately don't work well when your data gets too large or when you have lots of computers to use. They were designed fundamentally for a single machine. Dask is a Python library that was designed to scale out those libraries. So we made Dask in order to partner with NumPy, partner with Pandas, partner with Scikit-Learn to make scalable versions of those libraries. So what Dask provides is it delivers all of the networking, load balancing, task scheduling, 
parallel algorithms to write down you know, one data frame join. There's lots of other smaller data frame joins. And integration with things like Kubernetes, the cloud, Yarn, general deployment techniques. So DAS you think of as being like a framework or a development kit that helps developers parallelize existing Python libraries. So, so if I'm thinking about the problems in doing distributed processing along a large data set, I have the data set, I'm going to load it into some data structure, and then I'm going to process that entire data structure. And there are two parts of distributed computing to talk about here. One part is the fact that you have this enormous data set and you've got to figure out how am I going to make a multi-machine data structure that can hold that data set. The other question is, how do I orchestrate my machines to do distributed processing across that distributed data set? So let's first talk about the collection. If I'm wanting to make a collection like an array or some kind of bag scalable, tell me how to do that. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I think you, you separate it really cleanly. And there's actually different kinds of people that talk about both kinds of problems, right? So if you want to make a, a parallel array, right, you're talking about parallel algorithms, people who think study math, people study linear algebra, that sort of thing. Yeah, so I mean, you could think of, let's look at a couple of different kinds of algorithms. A really simple one, sum. You've got a big array, let's say you're looking at the temperature across the globe for the next 50 years, maybe looking at global warming for the climate, right? You just want to see, does the temperature increase or decrease? So your big array, you cut up the earth into lots of little cubes, you know, maybe every cube for every, you know, thousand square kilometers or hundred square kilometers or something. And each of those cubes might be a little NumPy array, right? So we can already use NumPy. NumPy is already really good for handling those sort of uh, multi-dimensional array data structures. And if you want to compute the sum, you would just compute the sum of all those little NumPy arrays, and then you would sum up all of their sums. Really simple computation. It's a sort of a straight MapReduce kind of thing. A more complicated algorithm, maybe you wanted to do uh, your matrix multiply. Now you can do a big matrix multiply in terms of lots of little small matrix multiplies, but it's actually really complicated the structure of which little NumPy array has to multiply against which other NumPy array ends up becoming very complex. Maybe you also want to subtract off some standard deviation. That's also very complex. And so you end up building some fairly complicated task graphs, uh, some fairly complicated recipes of how to compute these large array computations in terms of smaller in-memory computations. So a project like Dask Array will parallelize NumPy by writing in all those recipes for you. It knows that if you have a million by million array, composed of 1,000 by 1,000 NumPy arrays, it can figure out which NumPy arrays to talk to which other one in order to do the larger matrix multiply, for example. Or if you're doing something simpler, like computing the sum, it'll do all the sums. And can you tell me more about what you're doing to distribute in, in Dask if I want to instantiate a really, really big distributed array, what kinds of work are you doing in Dask to instantiate that array? Yeah, so yeah, so let's go with the climate science example again for a second. So 
let's say that you are, these are usually run on big iron supercomputers. So we're talking, maybe we're on the cloud in Kubernetes, maybe we're on some HPC system. And there's probably some file, maybe sort of like HDF5 or NetCDF. These are file formats commonly used to store these large arrays. And there are Python libraries already to read blocks of NumPy arrays out of these larger files. And so we just need to call that, num that Python function that already exists thousands of times across our many machines in order to load up all these different chunks of this NumPy array. Now we've got these thousands of machines, each holding you know, maybe 10 NumPy arrays. And now we need to sort of map and figure out, well, which, for this particular NumPy array, where does it fit in the broader picture? Maybe this is the NumPy array that corresponds to the temperature over France, for example. And on this other computer is a NumPy array corresponding to the block of temperature over Italy. And so we know that if we want to sort of look at the Italy-France connection, we need to have those two machines connect to each other. And so Dask is really a system that's, that's watching all those machines and is tracking all of those Python objects and is, as necessary, telling those machines what to do. Okay, it's now time for the machine holding France to compute its sum. It's now time for the machine holding Italy to transfer that array over to the machine holding France so that we can do some interaction. And so there's, there's two problems here. One is figuring out a plan of which arrays need to talk to each other and then executing that plan, which is a lot of talking to all the machines, making sure they're doing the right thing. If one machine goes down, making sure the work that was on it gets replaced. And let's start with the fault tolerance. So let's say I load this array into, into memory across all these different machines within my data center and instantly one of them fails and I've got to recover the data set that was on that machine. How does that fault recovery system work? Yeah, so there is a system within Dask called the scheduler, which tracks what everything is doing. So there's sort of the mastermind of the entire system. And if it notices that one worker has gone down, uh, it has been storing a record of what that worker was holding and it can replay that work on other workers that are nearby. Similarly, if a new machine comes on, that scheduler can say, hey, great, I've got three workers that are already saturated with work. Let me share the work to this, this new worker that arrived. And so at its core, the DAS scheduler is this just giant state machine that is watching all the events that are, all the workers are producing, saying, hey, I finished this work, what's next? And also watching the various clients are submitting work and also watching the workers to see if they, they fail or, or get recreated. Now we'll talk about the contrast with Spark a little bit more in the future, but while we're on the subject of fault tolerance, Spark had this nifty observation that you could recreate a intermediate data set by replaying the operations that had been applied to the data before the existence of that data set. I think it's called like lineage-based computing or something. It sounds like you have taken the same approach to uh, failures in the uh, in-memory collection maintenance. Is, is that correct? Yeah, that's fair. So your two options for resilience are either store everything many, many times, which makes sense for databases, makes sense for, for persistent storage, but doesn't make sense for computational systems. It's way too slow. The other approach is you just do recomputation when necessary. And that's what most recomputation that's what most computational systems like Spark or Dask choose to do. 
and just a little bit more on the data structures that people can instantiate uh, on multiple machines. Just a, a couple examples are Dask Data Frame and Dask Array. Can you compare the implementation of these two data structures? Sure. So Dask Data Frame is a bunch of Pandas data frames. So Pandas is often used, like where you might use SQL, think of it maybe as like a large Excel table. So you have a lot of columns of homogeneous type data. So you have a, a name column of text and uh, a value column of decimal or float points. Uh, so again, common for business applications, common for anything that's sort of tabular. Uh, Dask array is a bunch of NumPy arrays. And NumPy is sort of the climate science example, bunch of multidimensional gridded structures. Think of genomics data, think of satellite imagery, think of biomedical imagery, think of simulations of you know, fluid flow over aircraft wings. Uh, but there's actually lots of other ways people use Dask. Those may be the most common too, but they maybe account for 50%. So the Dask maintainers maintain things like Dask Data Frame or Dask Array. But there's other projects like X-Array uh, builds on top uh, to do a lot of geosciences work. Projects like Prefect are kind of like an Airflow alternative. Airflow itself runs on top of Dask optionally. So Dask really gets used in lots of different kinds of systems. It's much more a framework for building parallel frameworks than it is a particular data frame implementation. Again, I'd say about half of the Dask usage comes from people building their own stuff on top of Dask, which is where I think it really shines. The difference between a data frame and an array, and I think this this is beyond the, the scope of just Dask, is it the fact that a data frame has named columns? Is that, the, is that the main difference, or are there other differences between a data frame and an array? That's certainly one difference. I would say the biggest difference in my mind is that arrays can be multidimensional. And so if you look at like the pixels in an image, you can't put the pixels of an image inside of a data frame structure, a linear structure, efficiently. You actually really want all of the neighboring pixels in an image to be close to each other in memory. And so that's actually, they're just laid out differently. And if you go from an image to maybe like an fMRI data set, if you're looking at a scan of your brain, you really can't put that into like an Excel table or a linear data structure like a data frame. So certainly data frames do have names, but like X-Array as a project gives names to arrays as well. I think the main difference is, are you single dimensional and doing mostly business analytics applications? You know, group buys, joins, filtering. Or are you looking at multidimensional data and you care maybe more about FFTs, or overlapping computations or neighboring computations. And that tends to be the biggest difference between the two. Now, I do want to get to the processing part of things, but I'd like to know what in designing the Dask, designing and implementing the Dask data structures, what are some difficult engineering problems you've had to solve? So if you're talking about, in terms of data structures, you're thinking about like Dask arrays, Dask data frames, they weren't actually that difficult, to be honest. Certainly, you need to have an understanding of parallel algorithms. How do you do a parallel join in a data frame? How do you do a distributed matrix multiply? Those are hard problems, but they're also solved. Like, there are lots of research papers around how to do those things. There's lots of prior art. So you need to be a competent, but not necessarily brilliant engineer to do those things. They exist. I think the real challenge is, is one of community. So, so Dask Array follows the NumPy API pretty much exactly. And the Dask Data Frame follows the Pandas Data Frame API pretty much exactly. 
and we use those libraries under the hood. And so we are intimately tied to the existing Python ecosystem. And so I think the real challenge or the real accomplishment of Dask is that we were able to move an entire ecosystem of software that was not originally designed to be parallel to become parallel. And that's you know, a combination of engineering talent or engineering effort, certainly, but it's a lot more of community understanding and developing rapport and developing protocols and having a lot of groups that historically did not communicate a ton start to communicate about some of these hard problems. Okay, well, let's talk more about the processing side of things. So if I want to execute an operation across one or more of these large data structures that I've got sitting in memory across a data center, describe how that works. What's involved in the scheduling and the processing of these tasks? Yeah, I feel like most of my answers to you, honestly, are like, oh, actually, it's way more big, way, way more complex than you're asking about. Uh, so I'll, I'll do that again. Yeah, there's also a ton of ton of other things. How are we loading data? Is it on S3? Like, is there an S3 library in Python that's good enough to load data? How is it compressed? Like, did the person writing the compression library in Python, are they still around? There's a fun of ton of problems. It almost sounds like from, from the way you're saying it, it almost sounds like none of this stuff is groundbreaking computer science. It's a lot of implementing stuff that is prior art and sanding the edges in order to have a thoroughly designed ecosystem with all the edges sanded and all the imports easy to use. Yeah, I really like that analogy, actually. We did a lot of sanding. So Dask really is taking Python's data science stack, NumPy, Pandas, Scikit-Learn, and Python's web development stack, Tornado, Async.io, and smashing them together. Right, so Dask is a peer-to-peer -peer networking application running with TCP servers. That's the scheduling bit. It's all written on top of Tornado a popular Python networking library. But the message we're sending back and forth are these NumPy, Pandas, scikit-learn data structures. And so we're taking these really robust pieces that were in this existing ecosystem, and we're just smashing them together. And then we're going around and finding all the pieces that we're missing, you know, Parquet readers or Amazon S3 readers, and making sure that we're partnering with various groups that are building those pieces and make sure that everything works out well. Hearing you say that, it's actually really interesting thinking about the history here, because like Java developed these kinds of things much earlier, I think, be just because of happenstance. You had, for example, like trading companies building Java infrastructure, and they needed the great uh, networking libraries. They needed the great big data libraries. Like same with Google. Like Google, you know, I think built most of their like services infrastructure around Java, for example. So, I mean, I'm sure Google has plenty of Python also, but for the most part, Java usage, and, and then you, of course you just think about the Hadoop ecosystem, like all the distributed systems people were just like Java, you know, Java people. And so the byproduct of that is you have this dividend of lots of great libraries and imports and, you know, import a parquet file kind of things, um, you know, import from S3 kind of things just pre-baked into the ecosystem. And from from what I'm hearing, it sounds like Dask is sort of a uh, a really strong effort to give that same robust, filled-out nature to the Python ecosystem. 
Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, I think, I mean, it's not just Dask. Dask is one library instead of a broader effort that many people are currently working towards. But yeah, I think you've hit on something that's really interesting, actually. And it's actually at the core of a lot of tension that we see today in business. So the data engineering side of most businesses, as you said, is written in Java or some JVM language, for example, Scala with Spark. Uh, but the data science stack is all written in Python, right? So at the same time that businesses were building out you know, critical infrastructure in Java, all the scientists and all the math people and all the data science people were building out a lot of really exciting analytics capabilities in Python, C, CUDA, C++. And now we want to do both of those at the same time. We want to do some data engineering and then switch it to data science and do data science at scale. And that no one has a good answer for. Right? Typically what happens today is that you have data scientists working in Python on you know, some data on their machine, and they want to run it at scale, and they rewrite it in Spark. And that process is, is troublesome. Right? You're switching from one stack to another stack. And the Spark folks are trying to make Spark more friendly for data science. Right? And that's a huge effort. There's so many algorithms to write. There's so much user research to do. It's incredibly hard. Uh, and that's where I think the Java stack really falls down, is understanding how to do complex algorithms in ways that data scientists are happy using. And the Python stack was never good at distributed computing, except with systems like MPI. Uh, and so both stacks are really trying to, to fill in the gaps that the other stack does well. Uh, and so yeah, Dask is definitely a major effort, and all the things we do around Python are trying to fill in all those gaps to make us work at scale more effectively. And the approach of PySpark, I think, is Python APIs into the Java-based Spark infrastructure, which makes for a better experience for a data scientist. It makes a more familiar experience for a data scientist. And then I know, I know there's some issues there because if you're operating in... Python, then you have these Python-based data structures, then you have to figure out how to uh, serialize them and deserialize them into Java data structures, but you have Apache Arrow, which helps with that, but it just sounds very kludgy altogether. Maybe that's the yeah, issue. Or I actually, people always point to serialization as being the major problem. I think that's not the major problem with PySpark. I think that causes some performance woes, but it's actually not a huge deal. Lots of times, for example, using Arrow, that's like not a, you can, get, you can, you can work around that. I think what you can't work around, though, is a problem of complexity. So again, Spark is really designed for more data engineering workloads. I want to read a bunch of JSON data. I want to parse it. I want to filter it. Maybe do some database merge, throw it into Parquet. When you start doing more advanced workloads, more data science or machine learning, the Spark execution engine really starts to fall down. It's just not sophisticated enough. So Spark is fundamentally, at its core, a MapReduce system. So it, it runs maps, it runs shuffles, sort of all-to-all -all communication, and it does aggregations. And everything that Spark does fundamentally rolls down to one of those systems, one of those operations. If you start looking at something like a matrix multiply or like SVD, or looking at random access or time series operations, that fundamental system execution, that MapReduce paradigm, is not sufficiently flexible to handle it. And this is when you, you run into a lot of flexibility problems when you start hitting data science machine learning work, workloads. And there's a reason why TensorFlow was not built on Spark. Right? The kinds of executions that TensorFlow does are, you just can't sort of fit it into the MapReduce paradigm of Spark. 
so this is where I think, like we started off with Spark. Our original goal was to make NumPy parallel. And we said, great, let's try to figure out how to do that with PySpark. And that just, that failed very, very fast. And so again, when you hit more complicated workloads, the Spark paradigm doesn't work well. But if you're just doing data engineering, if you just want to do data frame stuff, Spark is an excellent choice. And if you have JVM infrastructure, you should definitely stick with that. Can you say more about why the MapReduce-based paradigm falls over for machine learning workloads? Sure. Let's look at a couple of examples. I'm trying to find an example that is accessible and also clear. Like, like, oh yeah, you can't do parameter servers with MapReduce, uh, but that's probably not going to be super accessible. Let's do something simpler. Let's look at time series for a second. Let's say you have a time series data set and you want to get the data for a particular day, particular day of data, you know, March 1st, 2018. Now you can do that by mapping a function over all of your data that says like, are you of this day? And you get back a result. But you shouldn't have to do that, right? You shouldn't build it to zero in on the machine that has that particular day of data and pick out that particular result. And so Spark doesn't provide any sort of random access mechanism. You can't uniquely identify one piece of data and just get that piece of data out. You have to map over that. And so that's like a very simple case where Spark falls down. And if you look at, uh, I think like two sigma is a good example there. They actually had to fork Spark in order to provide this kind of functionality. It was like a very deep change to the system to provide that sort of simple, simple change. Another example, let's say you want to do like a, like a rolling average or, a, or a, anything that requires neighboring information, right? I have maybe all my data is partitioned by week and I want to not partition it by month. Well, the weeks and months don't quite align. And so you need to do a little bit of work to sort of, to sort of have neighboring tasks talk to each other. But the way the Spark is, is, is arranged, that's actually not super easy to do. You can't sort of identify individual partitions. It doesn't have that same kind of flexibility. They can do those operations, but it requires a more complicated sort of shuffle all to all system, which uh, ends up just being a lot slower. So are you saying that there might be instances where you have a more of a, a complex flow, a complex sequence of operations where you want subsets of the data to be processed in uh, different parts of the DAG without having these uh, shuffle operations that have all of the data congeal into this one uh, this one place or this you know the all having all of the servers orchestrate with one another you you kind of want to have some long-lived computation in very different parts of the DAG that's right yeah so I think spark expects a lot of uniformity of your computation and that uniformity isn't always present look at airflow for example right so in airflow it also has a DAG but it's a different it's a very different kind of DAG where every node in that graph is a single execution that happened on one node. It's not necessarily a thousand node computation. And Airflow DAGs, if you look at them, tend to be a little bit more complicated. Right? You could not run Airflow on Spark. Certainly you might have a Spark job as being one node in Airflow graph, but the, the Spark execution engine is not something you're going to run a very complicated, not embarrassingly parallel workload on. And so Dask is kind of like a mix between the computational nature of Spark, but the flexible nature of Airflow. Cool. And from a design perspective, like, is there any 
comparison you can draw between Dask and TensorFlow? To a certain extent. I mean, all these systems, Spark, TensorFlow, a database, Flink, internally, they all have a task scheduler. Okay. So internally, they've got, externally, they've got some user API they give to users, some abstraction, the RDDE, the data frame, the tensor. And then they do a bunch of work. And internally, they break that down to lots of tasks. They need to run on different machines. And now there's the sort of scheduling problem that they all, they all solve. Dask, fundamentally, is just that lower level piece that does the scheduling. So Dask is kind of like the shared component that Spark or TensorFlow or Flink or a database would all have in common. So Dask handles all of the bits like networking, like load balancing, like, uh, like resilience we've talked about before, but without having lots of opinions about the kind of workloads that it's running. And as a result, you can use Dask to build things like Spark, and we see that in Dask DataFrame or Dask ML. You can use Dask to build things like TensorFlow. You can use Dask to build completely other things that we've never thought of before. You know, so we actually, when we uh, when we were designing Dask, our original goal was to parallelize NumPy, where it was to give this sort of parallel, multi-dimensional data structures. In order to do that, we had to build this really complicated task scheduler, which can handle these really complicated algorithms that you see in multi-dimensional arrays. And then we went to clients and we said, hey, great, like here's a multi-dimensional array. Isn't this awesome? A lot of them said, like, ah, that's cool, but I actually just want the task scheduler. Like, you've built a really cool car, but I actually just want the engine of that car because I am building a rocket ship. And we actually see a lot of this in the Python space because in Python, people tend to build lots of really strange things. Think of like hedge funds and quantitative finance. And so really Dask is just the internal execution engine that you would find inside of something like Spark or TensorFlow. But we've made that accessible to the end user so they can build their own systems. Dask is everything you need to build your own Spark if Spark isn't enough for you. Right. So one or a few examples of this scikit-learn and xgboost both use dask as a building block describe how one of these uses dask as a building block either scikit-learn or xgboost or you know, if you want to talk about some other library yeah sure those are both good examples uh to be clear dask is not core to either library it is an optional dependency so yeah xgboost does this parallelism with a library called joblib which does embarrassingly parallel computations. So if you're doing a grid search over lots of different models, joblib will, is running under the hood inside of scikit-learn. If you use the end jobs parameter, that's what it's using. And it usually dis dispatches out to a thread pool or a process pool, or because Dask kind of implements those same interfaces, it can dispatch out to Dask. And so you can wrap your scikit-learn code with a, a use Dask context manager and then scikit-learn will then dispatch its little tasks off to a Dask cluster, you know, running on a thousand nodes in the cloud, rather than onto your local machine. And so for some scikit-learn algorithms, you can scale them up pretty easily. XGBoost, they have their own system for parallel computing, but they can launch themselves on top of a Dask cluster. So if you are using Dask DataFrame and you are on the cloud somewhere, you can just import XGBoost, run it on your Dask DataFrame, and it will we hand all the data off to XGBoost, we set up XGBoost, we give them the right network permissions, XGBoost does its thing, and then it hands that back to Dask. And how would the experience of somebody using a Dask data frame and XGBoost 
compare to whatever data structure they would be using otherwise, whatever native data structure to XGBoost they would be using otherwise? Oh, it's the same. I mean, we're not doing a different data structure. We're just using XGBoost. XGBoost, yeah, sorry. So XGBoost has a distributed XGBoost built into it. They built out their own parallel XGBoost system. We're not reinventing that. We're just making it very easy for Dask users to set up XGBoost in parallel, hand data off to XGBoost, and let XGBoost do its thing. Oh, right, okay. Of this course. is actually maybe a big point about Dask. Dask does not try to own the world. So like Spark made its entire ecosystem. They made everything. In Dask, we're working with the existing tools. We have no desire to make a gradient boosting trees implementation. We just want to make it very easy for people to connect those things together. And this gets back to the community aspect of Dask, right? We're taking all of these pre-existing tools, and as you said, just sanding off the edges. And that's really how we operate. We're actually a really small team, and we've done a huge amount of work in the last few years because we're just partnering with all of the existing open source tools. So Dask is a way of creating these Dask data structures, the distributed data structures. And if I'm using XGBoost to run computations across those data structures, am I using the Dask scheduler to run those computations? No. When you're using the XGBoost bit, the Dask scheduler hands control off to XGBoost and it lets us do its thing. I mean, the XGBoost devs are really, really smart. They built a nice system to run XGBoost in parallel, way better than we could, right? We have no desire to replace that work. It works nicely. So the, what are the instances where the Dask scheduler would be used? Yeah, so let's look at another example, maybe Prefect. So Prefect is like an Airflow competitor. Some of the Airflow devs left. Airflow is, is great, but it, it, it hasn't evolved in the last few years. So lots of features people would like to have. So they made a new project called Prefect, and they wanted Prefect to be scalable, responsive, handle inner worker communication. And so they said, hey, let's just build this on top of Dask. Right, so Dask handled half of their work for them, all the execution coordination. Well, they get to build on lots of business logic, like you know, the sort of the cron aspects of Airflow, or the, you know, the, the various niceties that something like Airflow provides. So that's a good example where someone's using the Dask scheduler uh, in a more intimate way. If you look at, so they're like lots of large banks today. They run a credit risk application. Every time you apply for a credit card, you, know, you sort of go to a web page, you apply for a credit card, and you want to, they want to then figure out what should your credit limit be? How much should they uh, value you? And they run a bunch of little models on you. You know, are you a student? If so, what'd you major in? Do you own a home? What's your zip code? What's the risk in that zip code? What's the flood risk in that zip code? And so there's this massive web of thousands of little machine learning models that's really complicated. And that's run on top of Dask today in, I think, like three or four major banks. There's a decent chance that your credit card in your wallet runs on Dask every time you uh, apply for it. And so this is a case where people are using Dask not to build a big Spark-like thing. They're building it actually just to integrate it into their existing business logic. So many people have for-loopy Python code that where there's clearly some possible parallelism, but it's not just a big data frame. It's not just a big array. It's not a big embarrassingly powerful problem. It's more complicated. And so people, again, a lot of Dask's use is to paralyze custom bespoke systems often that have been around for years. That have been around for years written in Python. 
Right. Or written in C, C++, but have links to Python. That's quite common. Mm. And so their options for parallelizing those things are, well, I guess you, you described some of these options at the beginning of the show, but if they were to try to use Spark, what would be the bottleneck or the impediment or the Spark issue? just fundamentally doesn't, doesn't handle that, right? It's not like they're running a machine model on lots of data. They're running lots of different kinds of machine learning models on this data in a really complicated web. So it's not this really structured problem. It's a really unstructured problem. There's lots of concurrency in that problem. There's lots of opportunities to run things at the same time. But it's not this massive run this function across all of my data situation. It's way more complicated. And so Dask really thrives in those really complicated situations. Does that make sense? Yeah, so I, I think so. I mean, I'm kind of imagining the way that Dask operates is it just gives me access to thinking of this distributed system as a more fine-grained way of, of allocating memory and uh, performing computations across the objects in that that space rather than, I guess, the, the, the Spark system, which would require me to think of really large data sets. Yeah, what we often find is that people who have these sort of complicated workflows, they try to rewrite it in such a way that it fits into the Spark way of thinking. Say, oh, great, I can make this RDD, I can filter it out, I can do some group by operations. But changing your way of thinking about doing that, you end up actually losing a lot of the problem you were trying to solve. And Dask sort of doesn't force people to fit their, their problem into this certain paradigm. Dask is much more flexible. You can use a little bit of Dask to wrap around your existing system. And Dask will give you lots of tools. I mean, Dask has you know, distributed queues. It's got distributed locks. It has distributed task scheduling framework. It has all of these systems that you can use to build out your own system. And that, again, ends up being useful when you get a little bit outside of, of the sort of traditional business analytics workflows. Another way to think of this is that maybe you know, most problems can be solved by a database. If you can write your problem in SQL, you're set. Now, just outside of the database, there's problems that don't quite fit. Right? And that's where Spark is really useful. Right? It's almost a database problem, but not quite. You want to do a little bit of ETL. You want to do a little bit of lightweight machine learning. Great. That's where Spark is useful. If you go outside of that again, there's even like another periphery of problems where it's not a bulk problem, where it's more complicated. Uh, and that, again, is where Dask is useful. And then outside of that, there's lots of problems where Dask is not going to be useful. And you have to sling your own code. And here you're dealing with sockets, and you're dealing with you know, your own custom systems. So Dask sort of fits that problem of building out stuff where Spark just isn't really, isn't really flexible enough. Now, as far as building the scheduler, I can imagine a, a difference between operations that you would want to schedule on embarrassingly parallel kind of situations where you don't need to do as much coordination between the different intermediate data sets. And I can also imagine stateful computations where you have more intermediate coordination that you need to perform between different uh, data sets that are being processed along the DAG. Were there any specific design decisions that you made in, in building the scheduler that pertained to stateful versus stateless computation? If you were doing complicated 
data science computations, you have to deal with state. I mean, stateless embarrassingly parallel problems are really common, a really important use case, and any system will do them well, right? You can use Dask, you can use Spark, you can use MPI, you can do anything. And or you can use Celery, you can use lots of things. So yeah, when you hit, again, more complicated algorithms, if you require more flexibility, you definitely need to think about state. And so any system that Dask would prepare itself against will think about state. I may have lost your question, though. You said, are there any considerations? It, um, it, was, it was a muddy question. I, I guess I'd love to know a little bit more about the scheduler implementation and just the coordination side of things. Like, what's the master versus replica or, or uh, master, like, coordinator node kind of thing? Like, what, what's, your, what's your your setup for kind of orchestrating and talking to all these different nodes that are doing operations there? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so Dask is a centrally controlled distributed system. So there are a bunch of workers, which... Of course, there are many of them, and they do work, and they hold on to data, and they communicate peer-to-peer. -peer. And they're all, you know, usually TCP servers talking to each other. Then there's also the scheduler, which is the central coordination point. And so the scheduler talks to all of them and, you know, tells them what to do. Fundamentally, what the scheduler does is it has a task graph inside of it where it is tracking all the tasks it has to do. It might be millions of these little tasks, each of which is a Python function. And there's some frontier across that task graph that is currently running on all the workers. And some worker will say, hey, scheduler, I just finished task 10,000. You know, it was this size, it returned this data type, it took me this long to run, what should I do next? And the scheduler says, oh, great. It updates this little, its understanding of the graph. And says, aha, two more tasks have been made available. And then it needs to quickly figure out where to run those tasks. It says, oh, wait, well, great. The work that was just done, it's got some free capacity. And also it has the dependency that this task requires. That would be a good worker to run this task on. And so it sends that task off to that worker. Or it might say, hey, this new task actually requires two pieces of data. Now it needs to make a choice about which, which worker to send that task to based on the amount of data that we need, we need to move around, the backlog in each worker, if there are any dependencies on that task, like a GPU or high memory. And so the, the scheduler is making these very, very rapid decisions about getting new information that the graph has been updated and then deciding where to send tasks. And it has to do that in sort of the like few hundred microsecond uh, time window. And so the schedule is just the state machine living in one machine that's listening for all these signals from all the workers and from, from clients that might be sending at work. And then updating that graph and sending out messages to everyone else to make sure that everyone is in sync. So it's kind of like a, like a switchboard operator, maybe making sure that everyone, or a foreman at a job site, making sure that everyone is working on the right thing. We're all, they're not moving too much data around. If one of them gets hurt, it's swapping someone else in. So that's maybe like what a task scheduler does. I think the foreman at a job site is probably a good, uh, a good analogy. We had a show recently about the Ray project and the company around that any scale, how does Dask compare to the Ray framework? Yeah, so Ray is really cool. Ray is similar. So they're both similar in that they're both libraries that target Python users mainly that provide flexible parallelism. So they're trying to do things that are more complex than Spark. I would say the biggest difference comes about maybe about where they were started or where they, the kind of problems they, they work on. Uh, I think Ray really focused originally on reinforcement learning, which is sort of like close to the deep learning space. So they're focused on 
doing you know, really advanced machine learning things at scale. I think they're probably trying to replace tools like Horovod or sort of distributed TensorFlow. Dask started off more with a sort of more of a data science focus. So how do we get parallel NumPy, parallel pandas, parallel scikit-learn? I think Ray is also maybe trying to like build its own ecosystem. So like there's all of a lot of things built on top of Ray that are built by the AnyScale folks. While Dask is really much more of a component of a larger sort of Python data science ecosystem, we're trying to be sort of minimally creative and reuse a lot of components. When we talked about XGBoost before, you know, we're not making our own XGBoost library. There's no reason to do that. We're just reusing, seeing how we can sort of give XGBoost a little bit of a boost so that it's easier to use with the existing parallel ecosystem. On a technical level, seem to be interested, Ray, tends, Ray is a distributed scheduler, which means that it makes that the scheduling operations happen everywhere rather than in one centralized location. It's like a job site where there's no foreman, where all the workers are the foreman, which like has pros and cons depending on how you want to, to schedule something. Yeah, those may be the differences. I, you also shouldn't believe me. I'm super biased towards Dask. <laughs> That's fine. Well, speaking of which, you started a Dask company. What can you say about the company? Yeah, so the company is Coiled Computing. Uh, so coiled.io. Yeah, so what can I say about the company? Yeah, so for a long time, I do whatever is necessary to make the, like, the Python ecosystem grow better. That's kind of been my, my purpose of life for the last 10 years. And what I found is that we were limited not by technical ability, but by the ability for companies to interact with some company. Uh, so often when we, we'll go to like NASA, for example, and say, hey, NASA, like you should maybe be using Dask, or they're coming to us saying, hey, we want to use Dask. And they'll then say, who can we buy this from? And we say, oh, you don't need to, it's open source. And they say, no, we like need to buy this from someone. Like we need to have enterprise support. Like we need to be able to get on the phone call with phone with someone. Or, you know, we don't want to set this up ourselves. We don't have enough Kubernetes te techno technologists internally. Can you just make something that makes it easy for us to manage these things internally? That conversation happened enough times that it was clearly necessary to make a company that supported Dask. So today, Coil does a few things. We are making a cloud deployment product, something like maybe like Amazon EMR or like a lightweight Databricks that makes it easy to deploy Dask on the cloud. That should be up hopefully in the next few weeks as a beta version. We also do enterprise support where companies that need to make sure that Dask will always fit their needs pay us some amount of money to just as sort of an insurance policy. If something breaks that's critical, we fix it very quickly for them. And then three, we're also partnering with groups that want to parallelize other open source projects. So, you know, I was talking to a genomics group the other day. They, there's a lot of genomics data that's growing. They want to make sure that there's some easy way to process that. Dask provides 80% of what they need. They want to help us build out the extra 20%. So again, we sell deployment products, we sell enterprise support, and we sell services if it's building out open source technologies. Very cool. I guess last question, what did you learn about managing a, a project like this, managing a, a large open source project in your time at, so you spent time at both Anaconda and NVIDIA, right? That's correct. So just give me your macro perspectives on uh, managing a project like this, you know, now that you've done so within two different companies and as an independent person and, you know, starting your own company. Yeah, there's a that's a whole podcast of content. Right <laughs> I'm sure. First of all, I don't really manage Dask. Like Dask is made by individuals at four or five different companies right now. There's no centralized control. 
I'm kind of the figurehead because I was been around for a long time, but lots of work on Dask that are not me. I probably do the minority of work today. And also Dask, it's not just Dask, it's the community, right? I spend as much time talking to the NumPy developers or the scikit-learn developers as I do the Dask developers. So there's not like one team that works on Dask. It's a bunch of disparate people. It's much more of an anarchy. So I, I'm more like a cat herder than a sheep herder, maybe is the right term here. Um, so it's not management, it's seeing what people care about and seeing how to support their needs. That being said, the Dask developer community is very remote, very distributed. There's no, I think there's maybe two developers live in the same city out of 20. Actually, not, there's probably a few people in Paris, but it's fun, it's great. It's a great community. Everyone does Dask as like 25 to 50% of their time. And so it's really trying to figure out what their interests are and how to engage them and how to make sure that people are talking to each other in a way that makes everyone productive. But yeah, that wasn't really an answer for you. That wasn't really management. It's, uh, it's very soft management, right? It's only in the last sort of few years I've actually had employees that I could direct to do things. For the last many, many years, most of DAS development is not quite volunteer. Everyone's paid. But it's definitely like convincing their bosses that they should work on Dask for a bit. And trying to align those perspectives is interesting. And this is true of the whole PyData stack, right? The Python data science stack is, is novel in that it's not made by a company, right? In Spark, there's Databricks. In you know, Hadoop, there's Cloudera. For Python, I guess there's Anaconda, but they, like, they don't actually control NumPy, Pandas, Scikit-Learn. There's actually a bunch of university professors and a bunch of interesting individuals. So the Python community is great because it is actually a community with all of the wonder, wonderful and warty parts of being a community. <laughs> so yeah, I guess maybe my answer is that saying that I manage Dask is a strong statement. Okay, fair, fair enough. Well, Matthew, thanks for coming on the show. It's been really great talking to you. Yeah, my pleasure. That's been an awesome conversation. 